Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Another pirate station. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. August 6 marks the 77th year since the U.S. dropped a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. Three days later, on August 9, it dropped another one on Nagasaki. The United States has also been using depleted uranium in wars all over the world. Nuclear, numerous notable analysts are warning of the threat of nuclear war now between the U.S. and Russia. U.N. Secretary General Guterres warns that we are on the precipice of nuclear annihilation and the bulletin of the Atomic Scientist Doomsday Clock is set to 100 seconds to midnight, the closer ever. According to inter- the International Atomic Energy Agency, safety conditions at Ukraine's Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear plant are completely out of control. We just heard about that on the BBC News. And of course, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has significantly added to international concerns about possible armed conflict between the United States and China. That's what we will be talking about today on the second part of the show. We will discuss the latest about um, weapons and nukes in space. We are starting with John Steinbach. He is co-founder of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki Peace Committee of the National Capital Area, which is organizing a series of events on the East Coast with the survivors of U.S. nuclear bombings in Japan, as well as in the Marshall Islands. Thank you, John, for joining us. What what has brought us to this moment in time? Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be back on WORT. I, I think it's been maybe almost 20 years since I was last on on the program. And uh, I just want listeners to know that for the last 25 years, in my kitchen proudly is a WORT bumper sticker. So so I'm right. way, <laughs> way back to being on your show with Sam Day and with, with oh, Tom Hastings and other uh, uh, activists from uh, Wisconsin. So it's good to be back. And, and thank um, you for joining us. Yes, and, and I so to, to answer your question on what it, it's a very complicated question, and it, I could uh, talk for about three hours. 
on uh, you know how how did we get to where we are today so what i hope is is that maybe we can you know talk about that situation uh during, during the next half hour or so but uh, mm-hmm. i think we should start with hiroshima so so actually the bombing of hiroshima uh is not tomorrow august 6th it's actually today august 5th was when the bomb was dropped it was august 6th Japan time, but August 5th at 7.15 p.m. Uh, uh, U.S. time, that the uh, uh, Eastern time. And in fact, uh, we're having a program uh, tonight. If you go to our website, which is HiroshimaPeaceCommittee.net, uh, you can get the full schedule. It's going to be a Zoom program, and we're going to be featuring Mary Olson, who's an expert on uh, radiation and gender and how women particularly are very susceptible to radiation and how um, um, a majority of the uh, victims in Hiroshima and, and since Hiroshima are, are women because women are, are more susceptible. So it's going to be a very interesting program. I hope that some of the listeners here, and maybe at the end of the program we can repeat the website. So, so let's start with Hiroshima and understand that the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were uh, unannounced first strikes. It was that was the first uh, first strike, first use of nuclear weapons. And uh, the way that we got here today is that the official U.S. government. Pentagon policy, beginning with Hiroshima and continuing up to the present day, has always been a first strike strategy. So we hear lots and lots and lots about deterrence, but uh, the official policy has nothing to do with deterrence, and it has everything with the idea of using nuclear weapons first. And the idea is that in order to gain a perceived advantage, although, of course, all of the listeners of WURT know that there is no advantage, that if nuclear weapons are used, it's the end of the world, the end of humanity. But the, the nuclear strategists, their, their, their view is that in order to prevail in a nuclear war, and that's the official U.S. policy, that you have to use your nuclear weapons first, and then if there's any left over for, to retaliate, say, from Russia, for example, uh, that uh, then you would use your anti-ballistic missiles to to, uh, to wipe out the ones that are left. So that's the that's in a nutshell how we got to where we are today because nuclear weapons are first strike weapons and never have been about deterrence. And the current cause um, for the big concerns is the crisis on in Ukraine, but um, but we also got here because the United States government through the year years has killed a series of treaties. If you can go briefly through the treaties and explain what they meant and what it means not to have them. Yes, I, th- I think that's a very important point. So when the the UN uh, Secretary General, for example, made his quote, and and you read in the mainstream press in the New York Times uh, the uh, discussion about the threat of nuclear annihilation is the war in Ukraine, but it's vastly, vastly more complicated than that. Certainly, that's a big issue, but there are a number of other issues that have brought us to this point. And one of the most important issues, as you said, are the two most important arms control agreements that were ever signed. And one of them was considered by most nuclear analysts to be so-called bedrock of all the other nuclear arms control agreements. And that was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. So you, you, we, there are many, many arms control agreements. You have the SALT Treaty, SALT One and SALT Two, that were negotiated by Nixon and, and Brezhnev, and that, those, that stood for strategic arms limitations. Because if we go back 40 years, there were 70, 80 
thousand nuclear weapons in the world, and uh, so uh, and and back back then, if you were in school, you went through duck and cover exercises that were supposed to protect you from nuclear war, and there was uh, you know a fever of building uh, fallout shelters and bomb shelters, and you know and there was were numerous movies that were made about the end of the world nuclear war and books written about nuclear war. And uh, so the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties, uh, they stopped the buildup. And then you had the START treaties. And they were important because they reduced Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. They reduced the number of weapons. So now today, instead of 70 to 80,000 nuclear weapons, we only have between 13 and 14,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, of course, the, the 13 or 14,000 nuclear weapons that are there are perhaps 10 times or 20 times more than enough to create nuclear winter and, uh, you know, cause billions of casualties and mass famine and, and, and so on. And the other factor is that even though there are only between 13 and 14,000 nuclear weapons, that particularly the U.S. and Russian weapons, are much more sophisticated than the, the older weapons. They're much more accurate. Uh, in the jargon, in the nuclear jargon, they uh, are more usable. So nuclear war is more thinkable. It's more likely that somebody is going to pull the trigger on nuclear war. So, so that leaves the two treaties that were the most important treaties. The first one was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. And this one was aimed at anti-ballistic missiles, as the name suggests. And the idea is that if you uh, wage a uh, if you wage a nuclear strike, then then the other side is going to only be able to retaliate with a small number of missiles, and therefore you can use your anti-ballistic missile system to pick them off, so to speak, and then you can win a nuclear war. Uh, so, so the in incentive was, before the ABM treaty was, you know, you have to use your weapons first. And, and because if you don't, then the other side is going to be retaliating against uh, uh, empty silos. So Brezhnev and Nixon and Kissinger got together and said, well, let's uh, uh, abolish uh, the ABMs, the anti-ballistic missiles. And so they signed the agreement, and Moscow was permitted a, a limited system around uh, Moscow. Russia was, the uh, Soviet Union was permitted to protect, quote-unquote, protect uh, Moscow, and the U.S. could build a limited system around Washington. But otherwise, they were prohibited. And so, therefore, that backed us away from the first strike strategy and it lowered the threshold of nuclear war because you, you no longer had this threat of striking first so, so as to use your anti-ballistic missiles. Then the other treaty was signed by Reagan and Gorbachev in 1987, I, I think 1987, and that was the Intermediate Range Nuclear Weapons. And, and that was in the context of massive protests around the world. So, for example, on June 12, 1982, there were over a million people in Central Park protesting against Reagan's uh, decision to send Pershing and cruise missiles to Europe to directly threaten Russia, the Soviet Union at that point. And these were called intermediate range because they only had a range of 1,500 to 2,500 miles. So they weren't able to go halfway around the world like a, like a true uh, ballistic missile, intercontinental ballistic missile. But because they were being deployed in Europe, uh, that, that, that represented a, an immediate threat to the Soviet Union because the flight time was only five or six minutes. And so therefore... And then if Russia deployed them, which Russia undoubtedly was going to do, then you would have a five-minute warning on each side. So it was decided that this was too risky and that we would not, that both sides would not deploy their intermediate-range missiles. So 
Soviet missiles would not threaten Europe. European missiles would not threaten the Soviet Union. And once again, it backed away from this first strike strategy. Uh, so then we have uh, George Bush II in, I think I want to say 2004, who abrogated the ABM Treaty, the most important treaty of all. Bush pulled out of that and then proceeded to, you know, go with the whole Star Wars thing. And, and we're still dealing with that today. We're still pouring hundreds of billions of dollars down a rat hole trying to perfect an anti-ballistic missile system that the vast majority of the scientists say, you know, can never work. But, but of course, that's not the issue, even if it doesn't work. Just the perception that you're pursuing that kind of a system means that, you know, the other side, you know, you know, if they even think that it might work, then they're going to respond accordingly. And then Trump in 2019 pulled us out of the intermediate range nuclear missile uh, treaty. So therefore, the two most important treaties uh, are no longer operative. And of course, the U.S. is busy building an ABM system that they say, oh, well, Russia doesn't have to worry about it. We're going to put them in Poland and Romania, but they're really not intended for Russia at all. It's it's against Iran. Iran Iran, Iran might uh, might develop nuclear weapons, so we have to protect against Iran. But Russia has nothing to worry about whatsoever. And if they do, they're they're just being paranoid. So of course, Russia is looking at this and is seeing it as a direct first strike threat and. And, and Russia has responded accordingly and has built its own uh, system of hypersonic weapons and also its own uh, anti-ballistic missile system. And so that, in a nutshell, is one of the big fat reasons why the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist says the doomsday clock is 100 minutes, 100 seconds to midnight, the closest in history. And I will say that a number of analysts have been pressing the Union of Cons uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists to actually make it closer to midnight because, as the Secretary General said, we're, we're closer than ever to, to nuclear annihilation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I got to tell you, John, that as it happens, my the first time I visited the United States, I was in New York just in time for that million people march, which was, um, I, I could not believe my eyes, I participated in it, and um, it was the first and also last time that um, I saw so many people, and there was this huge, uh, like you said, this huge um, protest all over against nuclear weapons, and you know, one interesting thing is that um, Reagan um, called his plan MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, which is exactly what it is. And uh, it makes no sense at all. Uh, why, why would we want to destroy everything and everyone? And uh, when you think about that, it's interesting that we don't hear nowadays much about nukes. Uh, people don't seem to be very concerned about that. How? Why? Why do you think that is? And what do you think can change that? Since we are at such a dangerous moment in in really the history of humanity. Yeah. So I, I think that's a good question. You know, I I would point out to, to the listeners that. You know, we all know about uh, the the protest that uh, in Central Park on June 12th. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin, has a long history going all the way back to the the progressives uh, uh, of uh, marching against war and being in favor of peace. Right. And, uh, and uh, but I I think that the answer is I think there are several parts to it. I think one part of it is that, uh, uh, and, and I want to point the finger at the Clinton administration, because Bill Clinton, if you go back to the mid-1990s, and one of, the, one of the minor arms control agreements was signed under Clinton. I don't even remember which one it was. And Clinton went on national TV, all the networks, and it was focused on 
nuclear weapons. And at that point, the numbers of nuclear weapons were already dropping. Uh, the Soviet Union had just uh, disintegrated. Uh, there was actually <laughs> illusions that there was going to be a peace dividend and that there would be uh, peaceful relations with Russia. And uh, so Clinton went on TV and specifically talked about nuclear weapons, and he talked about children having nuclear nightmares. And his, his, his direct quote was that the era of children having nuclear nightmares is over, uh, the Cold War is over, and the threat of nuclear war is over, and that people don't need to be concerned anymore. So I think that's one of the reasons why the, the public opinion, and not just in the United States, but worldwide. It's, I mean, it's important to remember that it wasn't just in, in the United States that w there were millions of people in the streets. There were tens of millions in the uh, people in the streets throughout uh, 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 Europe. There was a, a significant uh, anti-nuclear peace movement in the Soviet Union itself. And perhaps the biggest and most important anti-nuclear movement was what we called the non-aligned movement back then, the Seiko uh, Tures of the world and Julius Nyeri's of the world and, and, and countless other heads of state, from, primarily from the global south, that were leading the struggle against nuclear weapons. And, and, but of course, although this is the reality and that the, the, the leadership of the anti-nuclear movement was largely uh, the people of the global south, that that was not understood or recognized by the, the peace movement, especially here in the U.S., but I think in uh, Europe and Japan as well. So that's, that's an, another factor. There was a feeling that, well, we marched in the streets and we got Reagan to back down and Clinton says everything is safe, so therefore you know, we don't have to worry about it. All, all is good now. Yeah, I want to, um, I want to, um, John, we have a caller for you, and I also have two, um, I think, essential questions before we let you go. So sure, sure. Uh, let's go quickly to our caller. Um, David, you on the line, if you can be brief, please. Oh, thank you, Espy and uh, John. Uh, I'm just calling to back him up. I'm calling you from San Francisco, a group called Abalone Alliance Safe Energy Clearinghouse. And we uh, have been working on the phoniness of nuclear, both in the military and in the uh, so-called peacetime energy uh, uh, realms of it, that basically if we were going to have a dangerous product that was going to be around for a quarter million years, you would want to train the entire population on how to prepare or, or uh, deal with such a dangerous issue, uh, nuclear waste. And they have instead made it top secret, basically, uh, to be uh, involved in the cleanup of it. And so when you look at the idea that civilization has faced off against, it's against the law to learn how dangerous this is and how to deal with the cleanups of it, and that our tax dollars are actually going toward making sure that we can never know how dangerous and uh, methods of cleanup can be. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, we, the people, are being denied self-preservation in the whole realm of nuclear waste. And, yeah. uh, and top secret budgets uh, were put together to build these things, and homeland security is, is money is being used to protect them, but we the people can't find out how to uh, clean it up. Yeah, David, thank you. Um, and let me, we have another caller. Let me go to that caller right away and then ask you, John, to respond to both. Um, Steve, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Esty and John. Truman is widely and justly held accountable for the August 45 war atrocities in Japan. However, a broader examination of early Cold War history offers the example of MacArthur's and the Joint Chiefs' bullying of Truman tr to introduce atomics on the battlefield in Korea in the winter of 1951, and Truman's wise resisting of that move, and another uh, history tidbit to throw out. Don't forget that in the early Cold War, 
uh, rocketry, uh, 24 hours was required to uh, preload the liquid propellants prior to launching, and that uh, failsafe is absent today, of course. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And uh, John, since um, we have so little time, I would like to add another question to each of these questions. Um, to David's, um, I would like you to also briefly address the notion that nukes are a green energy and the, the ridiculousness of um, uh, supposed environmentalists um, wanting to add uh, nuclear power to um, to our energy uh, infrastructure. And to Steve's, um, I would like to ask you who um, is making money out of uh, continuing the nuclear arms race? And if you can be brief, please. I know well, it's a lot yeah, to answer. <laughs> yes, and I'm thinking next year, you need to really have me on for about an hour because we could talk right. about an hour for each of these questions to, to yes. answer David's question first. Uh, so I was I was actually at the Diablo Canyon protest back in 82, I think it was. And uh, I was there three months, and I helped to organize in the office. And uh, to answer his question, there is no cleanup. Uh, there, you know, nuclear waste is forever. It cannot be cleaned up, and that's one of the one of the great arguments against nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Uh, every nuclear power plant is a bomb factory. You cannot separate the two technologies. Uh, so, uh, and then getting to uh, getting to the issue of uh, Truman and uh, and. Uh, and others that were pushing nuclear weapons in Korea and, and also pushing for a first strike against uh, the, the Soviet Union. You know, all of this is correct and true. It's important to understand, though, that Truman and most of the other leadership, including Leahy, Eisenhower, and, and, and MacArthur, uh, all opposed the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So. So Truman did it in spite of the overwhelming opposition of his Joint Chiefs of Staff. So getting and getting the last the last question had to do with what was your last question? Um, well, I wanted to know who's making the profits, and let's ask oh, yes. you yes. at the so, same time yeah. who is suffering. Yes. yes. Oh, absolutely. So the answer is that the corporations that are making the money off nuclear weapons are exactly and precisely the uh, the uh, corporations that are making money off of nuclear power. It's Westinghouse and GE and Bechtel and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and so on, General Electric. It's the same corporations that have been making trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars from the arms race and from uh, nu uh, nuclear power. And so, and then just finally, because this is an important point, this idea that nuclear power is going to prevent the uh, greenhouse gases and is going to save the planet from uh, the greenhouse effect and from climate change. Uh, and that's, that is it's absurd for a number of reasons, first of which nuclear power is not remotely carbon-free. It takes an enormous amount of energy to build a nuclear plant. It takes 10 years. It takes these days, it's costing $20 billion to build one reactor. And, and so they're, they're not clean in terms of building. Uh, they're definitely not clean in terms of operation. And they cost so much, and they take so long to build. And the bottom line is, is that the other is existential threat, which is the, the threat of climate change and global warming, you know, is such that we really don't have time to build. Even if nuclear power was the answer, it would take 20 or 30 years to build the plants. We would have to build thousands of the plants, even if everything went perfectly, which we have no, there's no record of that. We can look at Fukushima and Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and so on. Uh, so so the, the, the nuclear power is not the answer. It's too expensive. It takes too long. Uh, and that the, the, the answer is to, to the climate change question. And I think also the nuclear, nuclear weapons question is 
that we need a, a revolution, a social revolution, and we need to radically, radically simplify lives and radically reduce fossil fuel consumption and resource consumption. And the only way we're going to do this is in an organized manner and educating the public that these changes are coming, and they're coming in the near to midterm. They're not, you know, decades and decades off. So we, we, it's, it's either we make the decision and we change as necessary, or Mother Nature makes the decision for us, and uh, well, the situation yeah. becomes really bad. Yeah. Well, John, there's a lot we haven't talked about. We'll, we'll have you again. Um, can you repeat your website and the time of your event tonight? It sounds like you have some important new information. Yes. And so for, for our friends in Wisconsin, it will be at 8 o'clock. And if you go to our website, it's HiroshimaPeaceCommittee.net. HiroshimaPeaceCommittee.net. It's one word. Uh, the schedule is there. And we have a lot of other information, videos, and so on on the website. So I'm sure that people will find it interesting. And then finally, it's great to be back home on WORT. And anytime you'd like to have me on, give me a call. I'd be happy. Thank you so much. And our guest has been John Steinbach, co-founder of the Hiroshima Nagasaki Peace Committee of the National Capital Area. Appreciate uh, you joining us, John. And I also want uh, folks here to know that Lanterns for Peace 2022 will be happening this Sunday at 7 p.m. at Tenney Park Shelter. Bye, John. And hello, uh, Bruce Gagnon. Thank you for um your uh, patience. Bruce Gagnon is coordinator and co-founder of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. He has been working on peace space issues since 1982. He was a Vietnam-era veteran in the U.S. Air Force and was trained as an organizer by the United Farm Workers Union. And um, thank you, um, Bruce. You, and as well as Carl Grossman, have been guests on this show through the years uh, quite a few times. What is the latest in um, uh, weapons and specifically nukes in space? What, what has been happening since we last talked to you? Well, um, first of all, can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you well. All right, well, thank you for having me on. Um, there are many different things happening with uh, space weaponization these days. The first thing I would say is just a massive glut of launches of satellites, many satellites, by companies like SpaceX, owned by Elon Musk, launching, they say, for 5G. But as it turns out, 5G is a military instrument that will enable quicker targeting, directing, of weapons to their targets. And in fact, Musk has bragged very recently that he is providing uh, targeting information to the Ukrainian government as they shell their own citizens in Eastern Ukraine in what's called the Donbass, the Russian ethnic citizens. So uh, as a result of this, tens of thousands of many satellites that are being launched, we're getting this overcrowding situation in the orbits in space. Uh, there's a uh, NASA astronaut by the name of Kessler who has coined a phrase called the Kessler syndrome. And he and NASA now are worried and speaking out about it that because of this overcrowding situation in the orbits surrounding our Earth, that there will soon be this cascading collision of existing space debris, which will then crash into these satellites, creating more space debris. And before long, guess what happens? Uh, virtually everything on Earth goes dark because uh, everything we do anymore, it, it seems, is hooked up to a satellite. So whether it's GPS or the military or internet banking or cable TV, I mean, you name it. Everything is hooked up to satellites. So this is, I would say, one of the more immediate
problems. And then with the current tensions going on between the United States trying to create a war with both Russia and China simultaneously, can you imagine we couldn't handle Afghanistan in 20 years, but now we're going to take on the two big uh, nuclear uh, powers in the world? Well, uh, astronaut Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, one of the early moonwalkers, came to a protest I organized at the Kennedy Space Center in 1989. And he spoke about war in space. And he said, if we ever have a war in space, it will be the one and only, because again, so much space debris will be created from blowing things up in space that we will be entombed to the planet forever. We won't even be able to get a rocket off the earth through this minefield. So as a result of this, the United States and other countries have moved to cyber warfare. The idea that, well, maybe instead of blowing up each other's satellites, we could use cyber technology to essentially crawl inside the quote unquote enemy satellites, shut them down so that they're not useful during a war. They can't see. They can't see what's going on. They can't target. In fact, it was Clinton when he was president uh, during the war on Yugoslavia to break up Yugoslavia into pieces that cyber war was first used. Uh, Clinton had the uh, U.S. Uh, military essentially crawl inside of Yugoslavia's air defense system and shut it down so that when U.S. NATO were bombing the living hell out of Belgrade, including using depleted uranium weapons that have since then caused huge amounts of cancers throughout that region, by the way. But anyway, uh, Belgrade, uh, Yugoslavia, was not able to defend themselves against these attacks by U.S. NATO warplanes. And so cyber technology then is a is a uh, big instrument that's happening today. The Space Command just announced uh, very recently, in the past six months or so, that they've come up with their first weapon system, which is a ground-based laser that would be able to blind another country's satellite. So they're having to rejigger the whole space weapons, space warfare program now, because the earlier technologies of anti-satellite weapons that would just be used to go up and knock out another country's satellite become problematic uh, as we look at this Kessler syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember talking with you some years back um, when they were talking about lasers from space uh, used as weapons against countries um, on the planet. And, and I... I, I is that still a part of what they're thinking about? Or, or have they really changed it to lasers from Earth? And also, um, what about nukes? Are there, are there nuclear um, weapons in space? Or are there plans for that? Well, they're still, <clears throat> excuse me, they're still, they are still working on lasers from space that would hit targets on the Earth below. Yeah. They call it the Death Star at the Pentagon. It's, they have uh, such cute names for these things. Oh, yeah, they? yeah. Very friendly names. Yeah, yeah. In addition... Movie, uh, movie kind of names, Hollywood. There are no, as far as I know, uh, there are no orbiting nuclear weapons today, although the nuclear industry does view space as a new market where they want to put nuclear-powered mining colonies on the moon and Mars and various planetary bodies. They want a nuclear reactor to get uh, spaceships to Mars in half the time. They say it take a year to get to Mars with a conventional rocket and astronauts' bodies would turn to jello because of space radiation. So they say if we have a nuclear rocket, nuclear powered engines, uh, we could get there in half the amount of time. And so in fact, uh, they're now getting ready to test this space nuclear rocket. And they decided at NASA not to test it on Earth at their normal testing grounds. They said because they'd never be able to pass the environmental impact statements, 
because it's too dangerous. So instead, they're going to do a flight test in lower Earth orbit. So just above our heads, they're going to launch these, these devices, turn them on, and then see how they work. Now, if something goes wrong and they fall back to Earth and they burn up on reentry like things do from time to time, then they're going to be spreading this toxic uh, radioactivity into the winds to be carried around the Earth. So we're very much opposed to all of these kinds of nuclear power plants for space. You might remember in 1997, we organized a campaign against the Cassini plutonium launch from uh, the Space Center in Florida, 72 pounds of plutonium. And right before the launch, uh, the uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico newspaper reported that as they were fabricating the plutonium generators at Los Alamos Labs in New Mexico, they had 244 cases of worker contamination. Hmm. So uh, we say that this whole space nuclear thing is problematic even before you launch. Because uh, working at these laboratories that have long histories of uh, worker contamination, contamination of local air, local water sources, it's too dangerous to mess around with nuclear power in space. Yeah, and that's not even thinking about the people who are mining the uranium in uh, various places in the on, on Earth where there's no... Um, health um, um, regulations or um, monitoring. So the, the victims are many, but because we have so little time, I, I want to ask you um, about the other countries, because obviously the United States, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it seems to me like the United States has been the initiator, that the other countries are always following what the United States is doing, which, um, you know, when I listen nowadays to Blinken, uh, always accusing others and uh, always positing the United States as this great democracy who's protecting democracy and peace and, and so on. Um, I, I shake my head, but so, so let me have you answer that, but also, so obviously both Russia and China are quite developed, um, in, in their technological abilities. There's of course Israel too, and, um, other countries that, um, are playing with, uh, space like India and Japan so with so many things already in space, just by, from the United States, what do the other countries have and how does that affect our, our situation here that we're talking about? Well, I think the most important point uh, to answer your question is that for more than 25 years at the United Nations, Russia and China annually, every year, go there and introduce a new treaty to ban all weapons in space. It's called PAROS, P-A-R-O-S, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space. And every year it goes to the floor of the General Assembly as a resolution, and it passes overwhelmingly with the United States and Israel opposing. And then it is sent by the General Assembly to Geneva, to the permanent a conference on disarmament for actual negotiation as a treaty. And it is there that the U.S. and Israel have been blocking this treaty for more than 25 years. And so as a result, Russia and China have said, look, we don't want an arms race in space. We've, we don't want an arms race on Earth. Russia and China have both said that they would never use nuclear weapons first something the United States refuses to do still today. But Russia and China said, we can't afford to get rid of our nuclear weapons now. We can't afford to have serious arms control uh, treaties to get rid of nukes. 
because the United States also backed out of the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, that outlawed these so-called missile defense systems, a technology that is part of U.S. first strike attack planning. In fact, at the Space Command, every year they do a computer war game they call the Red Team versus the Blue Team. And in that computer war game, the United States launches a first strike attack on Russia and China. And then when Russia and China, after they've been hit, they try to fire their retaliatory, their remaining, remaining retaliatory capability. They try to fire it, but the U.S. uses its so-called missile defense shield to pick off that retaliatory capability. And so the U.S. now has been surrounding both Russia and China with these so-called missile defense systems. In fact, the United States has built these on land in Poland and Romania. And they not only can fire these so-called missile defense systems after a first strike, but these same platforms also can fire first strike attack cruise missiles, Tomahawk cruise missiles that are nuclear capable. They could reach Russia in a matter of moments. So this is literally a Cuban missile crisis in reverse, something we never hear about in the corporate media in the United States or throughout the West. So uh, it's dangerous. The United States is pushing this new arms race into space and continuing it on Earth and really is not interested in any kind of uh, uh, reduction in it. The only thing the United States wants is global domination, as they spell out at their Space Command uh, uh, logo above the doorway in Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado. It reads, Master of Space. So in a planning document called Vision for 2020, um, they say that U.S. will control space and control the Earth below using space technology. Mm -hmm. So um, we have only about five minutes left, and I want to put out to you two questions that I want to make sure that we get to before um, we're done. And one is, what are the most dangerous weapons uh, in space currently and what's um, on the drawing table? And the second is exactly what you just referred to, you know, you've been doing it forever, this work. John, our first uh, guest has been doing it forever. I've been doing it forever. But uh, the mainstream media are not doing it. Um, there is generally no concern about it at all, if there's even a, a, a little bit of knowledge, which I think there isn't. So can anything be done before we are annihilated? <laughs> well, I think that's the, the question of our time, isn't it? And I would say, in the end, it's about money. The answer to your question is about money. The United States, when you add up all the various pots of gold that Pentagon money is hidden in, we spend about $1.2 a year in the U.S. on the military and planning for global war. I think that the taxpayers have to begin to engage in a much more vigorous way than we have up to this point in time. Over these many years, they've said at the Pentagon that Star Wars, war in space, will be the largest industrial project in the history of the planet Earth. And they say that it's going to necessitate so much money that they have to come up with a dedicated funding source to pay for it. And they say, we have. I read this in an editorial and industry publication called Space News some years ago. And they say that we've sent our lobbyists to Washington to secure this dedicated funding source. And they called it the entitlement programs that officially are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and what's left of the social safety net that is in tatters today. So these are the programs that the military industrial complex, the aerospace corporations, have identified for defunding 
in order to pay for this largest industrial project in the history of the planet Earth. So this is coming out of our hides. It's coming out of our future. We're not going to be able to deal with climate change because we're not going to have any money to do it at the, way they're, at the rate they're going. And so you're right that the corporate media does not ever report on any of these aspects of it. They used to 30 years ago, but not any longer because they've, the, uh, the industry, the oligarchs have consolidate, consolidated their control over the media. So the people really need to become activated. They need to stop thinking that there's a difference between the Republicans and the Democrats because they're not. Uh, in my state, I have a liberal congresswoman uh, in, in the south part of Maine, and she votes for every military appropriation possible to continue building. Like that too. Her name is uh, uh, Tammy Baldwin. So, you know, uh, we've got to shake the trees here and recognize that these people are not on our side. They've been long ago bought off by the military-industrial complex. So I would say the most dangerous weapon is the dollar bill. The most dangerous space weapon is the dollar bill. As long as we continue to give our tax dollars to this uh, out-of-control military uh, warmongering machine, then we're going to have war. We're going to have war in space, and life on Earth is going to come to a crashing halt. Yeah. Well, um, on these um, bad news, or not really news, but uh, something that we need to keep remembering, I appreciate you joining us today, Bruce Gagnon, uh, coordinator and co-founder of the Global Network Against Weapons, a nuclear power in space, uh, a man who has been working on peace in space since 1982, Vietnam, um, veteran and uh, he was an organizer of the United Farm Workers Union. Um, could I just, could yeah, I just uh, yes. uh, invite people to check out my blog, yes. which is called Organizing Notes, N-O-T-E-S, Organizing Notes. And uh, 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 the address of it is space, the number four piece, dot blogspot.com space the number four piece dot blogspot blogspot.com yeah uh, it is there that i daily report on everything that uh, i'm learning and working on uh, and thank you again for inviting me and thank you bruce for uh, joining us and for your work through the years thanks also to summer and richelle i'm std noor thank you all for listening we'll talk again next week bye bye